For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's Word. And as we study, now let's ask for his help. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, may this text be the song of our hearts. Oh, Father, I am but a weak and flawed vessel left to myself. Who am I to feed the spiritual meal to my home church, to lead them to feast on such a bold proclamation of your gospel? Truly, it is excellent and profitable. And I am convinced, O Lord, I am convinced that you have charged me to do this because of your goodness and loving kindness. Use this text and this message to speak to our hearts. So we can adore you. May we see that your gospel is trustworthy. Help us to insist on these things and the promises the gospel holds. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm very thankful for White Chapel. And I'm very thankful for what the Lord is doing here now. For some of you, you may have only seen me in my face a few times. But some of you have known me for quite a long time. In fact, some of you have taught me Sunday school. Some of you have taught me in Sunday school. And some of you have helped me in Awana and during my years in the youth ministry. It was this local church that the Lord used to teach me what salvation really is. It was one morning, uh, me and my folks, we were sitting about the third, third or fourth row right here on the left, probably. That's where we normally sit. We were taking the Lord's Supper one Sunday, and I was probably seven, eight years old. And we were passing you know, the, the bread, and we were passing the cup all along the, the aisles. And I remember, you know, my parents, they wouldn't let me have the cup. They wouldn't let me have the bread. And, and when they did that, I wondered Why? So they got me, it got me to ask questions. Of course, they did that because they knew I wasn't saved. But it stirred up in me a sense of where I need to ask what's going on here. So I asked them, why, can, why can't I have the bread, right? Why can't I have the cup? And then eventually, that caused me to ask questions like, what happened on the cross? And why is that important? The answers to those questions pointed to my need 
for God to save me. I began to realize that God saving me means more than having a cracker and some grape juice during church. In fact, salvation means so much more than that. But what does it really mean to be saved? What do we mean when we say God saved us? As we dive into our text, that is the question that we must answer. And that is the question that we are about to answer. In our text, Paul reminded Titus that God graciously saved them. And so for us today, today we see God graciously saves his people. And by his people, I mean all believers, right? Believers in all the nations, across all the nations, and believers across all generations, all time. Everyone needs saving because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty of sin, and it is sin that makes us foolish, disobedient, and led astray. Our problem is sin, but our solution, He saved us. So what does that mean, He saved us? In order to answer that, I have a couple other questions kind of under that that we need to ask and then answer. So three of those I have. Here's the first one. Number one. Who saved us? The answer, God saved us. Look at verse 4. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. That's, that's the start of our text this morning. And some say that that was the start of an early Christian creed, an early Christian statement of faith that believers would have said together more than, more than likely. Um, it, acted, it acts like a creed or a catechism. Some of you may remember uh, when we went through the New City Catechism last year. And, of course, that span across the entire year, right? It's a good, long catechism. But this is a shortened version of that, right? It's more of like a short creed, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or Athanasian Creed. But this statement of faith here in God's holy, inspired, and errant word. This statement of faith has big things to say about God. This is the one true God who deserves worship from everything else that has ever existed. He is superior to all things. He created all things and He rules over all things. And His being is unlike any other. He is the triune God, the the God of the Trinity. He is three in one, one God, three persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three are God, yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and same thing goes for the Holy Spirit. And how that works exactly, we, we don't know. We're, we're not meant to completely understand that. And as we talk about the triune God, that's, that's a stumbling block for a lot of people, especially Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses. 
I've only used Uber once or twice, but I needed an Uber ride not too long ago. And um, if you don't know how Uber works, Uber is kind of like a taxi to where you can go on your phone and say, taxi, and then they pick you up and do like, Yerk. and they'll take you wherever you need to go. So I needed an Uber ride one time, and my driver, my Uber driver, just happened to be a Muslim. And, of course, that sparked some fun conversations. Um, evangelism is like a, uh, it can be like a big roller coaster. It, the thought of it is terrifying, but once you ride it and are familiar with it, it can be a fun time. So it was fun talking to this Muslim Uber driver. And, uh, but at the end of it, my heart just pitied for him because he just could not understand why or how we could worship Jesus as God. And he, he even said, he said, yeah, Jesus is a man, right? He was a prophet of God. But he also said, he says Muhammad was a, a prophet of God. And, and they were men, and God is God. Or in, this, in his case, God was Allah. But so he asked me, he said, these are men, God is God. He told me, don't you want to worship God? Friends, the reality is, my Uber driver and I, we worship two completely different gods. He worships a God whom he believes never was the word that became flesh or dwelt among us. He believes in a God who could never be the Son of God and also God. Yet we believe in the God who is Three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And God the Son, we believe He became flesh as Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And how that works exactly, we can't know for sure. We cannot fully understand how the Trinity works, but in His Word, that's how God reveals Himself. So in his being, God, in his being, he is unlike anything we can comprehend. He is perfectly holy and set apart from everything else. Not only is God holy, he is love. And not only is he love, he is just. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and his presence is everywhere and he is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he shows his providence over everything. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is good, and he is lovingly kind. In Exodus, the Lord says, The Lord, the Lord, a God, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's Exodus 34, 6, and 7. That is God our Savior. That is God our Savior. That is the, that is the He and that he saved us. 
in his goodness and loving kindness, God our Savior makes salvation possible for us. We see God at work when he sent his son to die for our sins and to make us new. God the Son appeared as Jesus who lived, died, and rose again. But when God appeared to us personally, he changed us. When he changed us, he saved us. And this takes us to our next salvation question. We know who saved us, but now we must ask, why did God save us? Number two, why did God save us? The answer, according to his own mercy. Look at verse 5. Fine flip there. Fine flip back there. Verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And when you read that, if you read the word flow of the literal Greek, it would read something like this. Not of works in righteousness we did, but according to his mercy he saved us. It's a different word order. At least that was my translation going through the Greek there. But friends, here's what that says. Here's the gospel. God saved us. And that brings purpose for us. It it gives our life meaning. Why? Because God saved us. What does that mean for us? That means everything. Without him saving us, we have no hope to share. But in this hope, this is our hope, that God saved us. Why? According to his own mercy. And it wasn't according to our works because we could never save ourselves. We are not saved by going to church. We're not saved by being a good person or growing up in a Christian home, holding the door for people, or even preaching God's Word. None of that saves us. Because Paul even says in Titus 3, verse 3, we were once foolish. He says in another place that we were dead in our sins. That's Ephesians 2, 1. And we were, we were like a car battery that was dead that needed a jump start from another from a other living car battery. We needed some juice because we didn't have any of our own. And Paul also says there in Ephesians, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So we don't deserve this salvation. But according to his mercy... He saves us anyway. God's mercy is not giving us what we deserve. That's what we could define God's mercy as. It's giving us what we, excuse me, it's not giving us what we deserve. Because we deserve eternal separation from God forever. God saved us from that. In his mercy, 
God ultimately helps us by saving us. So a little review of our questions. Who saved us? God saved us. Why did God save us? According to his own mercy. So here's our final question, number three. How did God save us? He richly gives us his benefits. And by his benefits, I mean the benefits of the Christian. And those benefits are found only in God, our Savior. Look at the rest of verse 5. Of course, we have, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's those benefits. Because being a Christian, that comes with benefits unlike anything we have ever seen before. And the first of these benefits that are mentioned is regeneration and renewal. But what does regeneration mean? Simply put, regeneration means to be born again. Being born again. As Jesus told Nicodemus, Jesus told him, you must be born again. It's John 3, 7. But what, is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born again? It means a spiritual rebirth. New spiritual life. And that's something that we didn't have before. Although we were born physically, we were not born spiritually. We were dead. But... In regeneration, in regeneration, God saves us. We are born again. It is God using his spiritual jumper, jumper cables to bring life into our batteries, to bring life to our dead souls, so that we can glorify God with a running engine. God does not save us by our works, but by the washing of regeneration. And since God saves us by regeneration, we cannot work our way into regeneration, right? We're saved not by our works. Same goes with with this as well. Regeneration is not something that we do to ourselves. It is God that does it for us. Our faith in Christ shows that God has been working in our hearts through regeneration. And when I think about that, that's talking about evangelism. That's quite a relief when I share the gospel with folks, when I try to share the gospel with folks. Say, well, why is that? Because it's not entirely up to me. I can faithfully plant those seeds in that person's life, but it is God who waters those seeds. It is God who uses our faithful evangelism to work in a person's heart. When God, put it this way, when God is transferring this regeneration software into our brains, 
what's the download speed? What, how long does it take for us to be regenerated? It's instant. God regenerates us in an instant. And because we are regenerated, we have a submission and a love for God that we didn't have before. It is God the Holy Spirit who did this inside of us. Not only has He given us regeneration, but it's a, it's a washing of regeneration. Washing here meaning it's completely spiritual. It is a washing that spiritually, it washes us clean, white as snow. It means that we are no longer bent to sin, but instead, the Holy Spirit inside us, He bends us toward loving God. Paul says in another place, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and the new has come. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Our identity is no longer in our sin. Our identity is in Christ. So what's another way we could illustrate regeneration, or at least the washing part? That's baptism. But what exactly is baptism? What do we do with that? Baptism is a physical sign that illustrates being born again, being clean of our sin debt. Now, remember what we talked about earlier. We can't work our way into regeneration. So, baptism, it doesn't perform the regeneration. There's no baptismal regeneration. Baptism does not perform regeneration, but baptism illustrates the regeneration that God has already done in us. Verse 5, we, there, we have by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what, what is renewal? Renewal is the process in our regenerated lives where God teaches us to be more like Him, to fight the sin that we still struggle with every day. This is also called sanctification. And this is not instant. This is a process. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says in another place, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And it's in eternal life. So, regeneration is instant. The download speed is like that. The renewal, that's a process. That takes some time. In fact, that takes the whole rest of our lives. God saves us with the benefits of regeneration and renewal. We are no longer identified with our sin, but we still struggle with our sin. We still struggle not to be disobedient. We still struggle not to be envious or have malice. And with our hearts, we struggle not to hate ourselves or to hate one another. 
think, okay, even if, say, we have been regenerated, even if we have been regenerated, even if we have been born again, what happens when we give in to those temptations and still sin even after the fact? After we've been born again, what if we still sin after that? Talking about this renewal process and sanctification, I like to think of it as climbing a tree, climbing a tree full of branches. Some of you probably know, used to do, I used to do quite a bit of that in my teenage years for the fun of it. It's great. But in the Christian life, in climbing the tree of the Christian life in this renewal, there are times to where we may grab a dead branch that we thought was good, but it was dead. So we grab it, and we may fall for a little bit. But if this, since this tree is full of branches that we're using to climb, when we, when we take that dead branch and we fall, those limbs right below us are going to, boop, they're going to catch us. When we fall, the branches below will catch us. Another way to say it is, when we fall... God will catch us. The Apostle John, he said, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. That is a helper. We have a helper with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous As regenerated believers, God is renewing us to be more like him. Going back to the Apostle Paul, here's what he wrote. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. It's Romans 12, 2. He calls us to continue our war with sin because we are no longer identified with our sin. Paul also says, how can we who died to sin, how can we still live in it? That's Romans 6, 1 and 2. Regeneration and renewal are transforming us to have a deeper hatred for sin and a deeper love for God. I don't know about you, but I would say those are some great benefits. Those are some awesome benefits. But the Holy Spirit, He doesn't simply give these to us. He gives them to us richly in abundance. But God's not done with the regeneration and renewal. God's not stopping there. He doesn't stop there. Uh... Let's look back at verse 5. Look there with me, if you will. It says, of course, we have, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then begin in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace. What does it mean to be justified? Right, This justification, what, is it, what does that mean? Imagine being in a courtroom, um, a courtroom with water, because I need a swig real quick. 
That's better. Imagine being in a courtroom where God, God is our judge. We know that we are guilty of breaking his law, right, because we've sinned. And because of breaking that law, that demands a price. That demands a punishment to fit the crime. There is punishment to endure. There is a punishment to endure for that crime. Yet, in justification, we are declared not guilty. We are, in justification, we are forgiven of our sins. Why? Because our punishment was endured by someone else. That sentence was served by someone else. In his love, God sent. We have God the Son. We have God the Son, Jesus Christ. He came to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross so that we can be forgiven. More from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writes quite a bit in the New Testament, by the way. Um, He says, For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, Jesus, he never sinned. He is not guilty of breaking God's law, but he took our punishment for us. He took that punishment and bore it on the cross. So that in him, Paul goes on to say, he did, Jesus did that. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Since the punishment for our crime has been paid, we are considered not guilty. Jesus took our sin. Why? So that we can have his righteousness. His righteousness. Another good passage that summarizes this is um, also Paul, by the way. Romans three, twenty-one through 26. Um, not sure if I have time to read all of that right now, but um, I would highly recommend to read it on your own time. Romans three, twenty-one through 26. Yeah, Romans three, twenty-one through 26. Highly recommend 14 out of 10 to read through that. Um, it's a good summary of what we've talked about so far. Because, especially because some have said and argued that paragraph in Romans is the greatest paragraph ever written. So, I would recommend reading that. So, because of Christ, we are forgiven of our sin, our crime, and declared righteous. It's, it's no righteousness of our own. It wasn't anything we did. But it was because of his grace. In fact, we read Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. The God of grace, God our Savior, he perfectly, perfectly displays his love and his justice on the cross for us. And as a result, we are justified by His grace. How can we define God's grace? I have God's grace 
means God richly gives us His benefits which we do not deserve. These benefits of grace, they're not for everyone. It is only for those who have trusted and do put their trust in Jesus for salvation. These benefits of grace, they're only for those who have their faith in Him. The Apostle Paul, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, forgiven of our sins, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Those who trust Jesus for salvation have rich benefits, which He graciously gives. They are regenerated, they are, re- they are justified, and they are being renewed to love God more. And since, since all these are true, right, God doesn't stop there. We have a future hope. Look at verse 7. We have so that being justified by, so that, yep, so that being justified by His grace We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Those of us who have been regenerated and justified and are being renewed, God has promised that we will become heirs of Him. What is is an heir? An heir means, basically means, someone with an inheritance. I'm sure we've all had loved ones, um, loved ones who have passed on, um, and since they cannot take their belongings with them, right, they leave them to their family who they leave behind. Um, I know both sides of my family have been through this the past couple years alone. Uh, I've had grandparents and great-grandparents who have gone on, and they leave an inheritance for us, but not only do not only did our families inherit those material possessions we also inherited other good things from them that we can't touch we have good memories with them and we have the good lessons they told us me and so my granddaddy uh, my mom's dad he passed um, a few years ago and we still joke and laugh about some of the funny, funny things he said. If you knew, you know, Donald Averett, he was hilarious. Um, I mean, it's the same thing goes for my two great grandmas on my dad's side. Um, both, I've had, I had two of those. Both of my great grandmas have passed in the last couple of years. And I remember, I still have good times with them and good lessons that they taught me by their, their actions. And especially if any of you had the chance, the privilege, and the blessing to know my grandmommy, um, Peggy Averett. Um, I inherited so much from her, not just in the way she acted and spent time with me. Um, and, of course, the amount of Bible study notes I got from her. Um, but she also taught me what it looks like 
to love God. So, good family brings good inheritance. But if that's true for good family, how much more so is it to have good inheritance from our heavenly Father? Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God, that is the Holy Spirit, right? Holy Spirit giving us the regeneration, renewal, all that great stuff. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So we are children of God. And because of that, we have eternal inheritance with God. Not just lifetime inheritance, but eternal life inheritance. That's what I mentioned earlier. That's Romans eight fourteen. He goes on in verse 15 and following. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's Romans eight fifteen through 17. So since we are children of God, we are heirs of God. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And in our process of renewal and sanctification, which is often painful, in that process, our hope of eternal life shows us that one day our struggle and our fight with sin, that is going to end. One day, one day, our faith will be sight. The groanings of this world will end. One day, our longings will be satisfied. Our longings will be satisfied, not in anything anybody says to us in this life, but our longings will be satisfied when we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. The meaning of the phrase, he saved us. That will be complete when all things are made new. We will be with Christ forever. But until then, there are some things that God wants us to learn. A couple things to take away real quick. Number, number one, rest in God's promises. Since God has saved us, he has promised to save us fully to the end. Our sovereign God saved us according to his mercy and the benefits that we have in him. Right? We talked about we have regeneration, justification. We are being renewed in sanctification. So our eternal life with God has started, but it hasn't been made complete yet. And that's often called, we like to call it, the already and the not yet. We have the already, but we don't have the not yet. Yet. <laughs> but until then, it will be a bumpy road as we are being renewed. That's why God tells us to count 
the cost. God will test us in our renewing, and it will be a costly war against sin and temptation. And he will, he will test us in our suffering by leaning on him when we cry to him for help. And he will test us in abundance when we are tempted not to ask God for help. In these times, we rest in God's promises. Apostle Paul also says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Sing, I will glory in my Redeemer. Resting in God's promises is how we cast our cares to God. Word of the Lord also says, Cast your burden on the Lord. Why? And He will sustain you. How do we cast our burdens on the Lord? We cast them onto God. How do we do that? We rest in God's promises. Because resting in God's promises frees us from anxiety and fear. We rest in His promises. Number two, we love God, our Savior. Indeed, the the problems we face in this world seem small compared to God we love. Compared to the God we love, everything in this life seems small. Because the Word says, You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you. That's Isaiah 26, 3. The God of our salvation is a God worthy of endless worship. He alone deserves our praise. And... The Apostle Paul also said to where, whether we are at home or away, we make it our, our aim to please Him. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. And as we please Him, we have joy in Him. What are the pleasures we have in Him? Everything we see to where Psalm 16, verse 11. The Lord says, or the word of the Lord says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What are the pleasures we have in him? Everything, everything we see in the phrase, he saved us. This last point, then I'm done. Devote yourselves to love others. Next week we'll cover... Um, Titus 3, 8, which says, the saying is trustworthy. Time out what, we, what our text is this morning. It is trustworthy, insists on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Those good works we show, that is the fruit of our, re, of our renewal. Good works are the fruit of our renewing, our sanctification process. If someone claims to be a Christian but does not bear fruit, we have the right to ask, are they even a Christian to begin with? If they're not bearing fruit, we ask, are they even born again? Have they been regenerated? Are they, have they been regenerated? Are they being renewed? One reformer, he put it this way. 
I consider the principal enemies of the gospel to be not the pontiff of Rome, nor heretics, nor seducers, or tyrants, but bad Christians. Of what use is a dead faith without good works? Of what importance is even truth itself where a wicked life belies it and actions make words blush? What's, what's that fellow talking about there? It's a reminder to pray for the falsely converted who think they're Christians when they're not. It's a reminder to pray for false Christians to truly have faith, to be saved, and to befriend them and show them the gospel in love because we can do all these things, but without love, what does it mean? Nothing. But the truly converted bear fruit for God. We bear fruit when we love the unbelievers in our society, as a lot of, as a lot of Titus 3 talks about. And for us in a church, we love each other. So to close, let me say this. To, any, to anybody in here who has no idea what we've been talking about, um, salvation doesn't know doesn't know anything about that um, before coming here. For those people, I would say, of course, this message is directed to us believers here at Wake Chapel, at this local church. But for, to those people who are unbelievers, if you haven't repented and put faith in Jesus Christ, none of this text applies to you. None, this message doesn't apply to you. But if you do repent, have faith, put your faith in Jesus Christ, truly, wholly, surrender yourself to him, that can be you. And at the end of time, we, God's believers, we are promised to have a seat at his table. And so as believers... As people invited to God's table, we invite any unbelievers. We say, come, sit with us and eat. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good. You are loving, you are kind, and in all your control and holiness, you are so intentional with us. You do not afflict from your heart, but you have compassion. Thank you for our salvation. Let us not neglect such a great salvation, but come to the throne of grace. Let us come to the throne of grace in our time of need. Let us run the race with endurance, looking to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.